Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. This episode of History of Jackson was sponsored by the Bean Around Coffee. Bean Around Coffee is based in Peterborough and they sell and make some amazing coffee. You can head to their website to buy some coffee beans or some coffee grounds. Now they make some fantastic coffee and it is my favourite coffee in the country. And for you want to grab yourself some coffee, head to www.thebeanaround.com and use discount code HWJ and the bear. 10 for 10% off all your purchases. I'll leave the discount code and the website in the description below. Hello everyone, I hope you're all okay. Today we are joined by Astrid and Chinny from the amazing It's a Continent podcast and today we're going to look at the importance of black history, black British history and the Bristol bus boycott of 1963. So how are we both doing? Good, yeah, good, good. Excited good. to have this conversation and yeah, thank you for having us. So, thank you yeah. very much for having us. No, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And sometimes I think it's it's important to speak about these issues that have definitely been, I've noticed in my own schooling uh, and educational career as a teacher and student that we don't often touch upon uh, Black British history enough. And when we do, it's all about the slave trade. Um, <laughs> so it's, I think it's important to look at these these positive parts of history. Uh, yeah, and I think definitely. it leads me to this first question, actually. What, how did you both initially get interested in Black British history? I think it kind of, the starting point, like you said, in terms of like schooling. So for me, I grew up in Devon. So I moved to the UK when I was seven, grew up in Devon. And my only other kind of like Black friends were my siblings. So in terms of connection with Black history, Black British history, there was very little, to be honest, none. And so... The older I got and I was like I actually have this massive gap I'm great when it comes to British history but my own history I have no idea and you also start thinking about were there any black Brits <laughs> and so it was through that that you were like you know through history because it's something that we don't really explore or get told about and so through that I decided yeah we just explored further did my own learning and yeah that's how we kind of it's a continent and this whole yeah podcast and book came about really. Yeah, definitely. Because I think there's always been a focus on like African-American history when it comes to Black History Month. And I think I was in like, so where do Black people in the UK come in? <laughs> like, Because we've been here for quite a while. Um, so I guess it's like the curiosity kind of drove me to have a look and do my own research. And because information is much more accessible than it was whilst I was in school, I think it's become more easy to kind of get and that information that we kind of share with our audiences today. And it's fantastic how you both began that journey as historians through wanting to learn more and and research more. I think that's I think that's really really great actually that you've both gone out there and found this information for yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, why why is why is it important to learn about Black British history then? I think in order to understand the way that the UK is in its current form, we need to understand all forms of history that have taken place. And I think, unfortunately, we tend to separate like separate uh, black history and have black history and then British history or just mm. history. Um, but actually, the two of them have much more of an interlink um, and should be discussed as a whole. So when we do discuss um, black British history, it should sort of be part of the wider discussion. And I think a lot of people didn't know about um, the Windrush because we had the Windrush 
uh, scandal, which is still ongoing, until that news story broke, which is quite a disservice because we then didn't understand how on earth, you know, that situation occurred because we didn't know what's happened in the past with the Windrush arrivals and everything like that. So it kind of helps us to understand the point of where we're at in this country and how, you know, there is still racism, discrimination um, against other sort of um, groups that are living within um, the country. And it's because of the history. And it's kind of, you have to understand history. It's kind of understand uh, the present day. Definitely. And I think to add to that, it helps from a representation perspective as well because you do realize you know British history black people were involved and we did support within that space and I think it's really important to make sure that black voices and the contributions that were made are amplified as well especially kind of you know black history months for me that's what the purpose of it is is really highlighting like you know this is also our contribution um within the country that's a that's a that's a fantastic point like not to or to focus on those who have possibly been erased from history. Um, I think it's really important that, you know, a lot of history has been whitewashed uh, yeah. and the contributions of, of people from minority groups from all across the world has been uh, diminished. Yeah. So does that, is that kind of the meaning and importance of Black History Month then? Yeah, it's a way of sort of highlighting the contributions that Black people have made to the wider world. Unfortunately, we do get the stories, this, this, you know, the stories of enslavement, which has dominated um, the narrative, which, you know, these stories are important. We need to learn about this to understand, again, how we got to the current position um, in the world today. But at the same time, we do also need to celebrate the achievements um, of Black people. And unfortunately, that is kind of, it's not covered as much and particularly um, that of, of the UK and what we'll discuss uh, today with the British, uh, Bristol bus boycott, because that was a movement that actually saw change. And I think when we think about, um, you know, civil rights movements and activism, we always look to the US, but there have been many other sort of political movements that have been spearheaded and should be sort of recognised and celebrated. Now, when, we're, when we've been talking about, we know we need to understand the past, understand the present, uh, and sometimes we need to look at the whole context, look at the historical moment. When we're about to, we're about to look at the Bristol, Bristol bus boycott of 1963. What was Britain's relationship uh, with black people historically, and in particular up to the 1960s? I think a key part of that, you know, stemming from the Berlin Conference, where you had you know, all of these kind of like Western countries, so like Britain, Germany coming together and splitting up the African continent. And then from that, you then had, you know, Britain's kind of footprint within Africa and also um, the Caribbean as well. And so I think that relationship was very much the starting point and kind of up to kind of the 60s and actually slightly past that for some countries because the 60s was very much where we saw a lot of African nations start gaining independence. It was very much Britain kind of, making them most of having its own colonies within Africa essentially and so yeah that was obviously a really dark kind of period and obviously you had the British Empire so all of those were very much the relationship that black people had um, with Britain. Yeah definitely we also saw these attitudes extended to um, Caribbean countries because they also did not receive their independence until around the same time period so we had this attitude that lingered kind of post uh, colonization where you know there was still a lot of uh, discrimination at the time and and it's it's hot, like you know you don't a lot of people don't look back and think oh the british empire 
and think of all the negatives uh, that the empire kind of perpetrated against its own its own citizens or or its enslaved people. Uh, and I think it's really important to draw light to those uh, those subjects and those those moments. Now we're gonna we're gonna be looking at Bristol specifically. Uh, I think it's really important to explore uh, explore Bristol's relationship uh, with black people at this time because Bristol, in recent memory as well, has been an important uh, city for some protest movements. So, what what was Bristol's relationship with uh, black people before and up to the nineteen sixties? Yeah, so the main sort of Bristol is a is a port city, so it was heavily involved within um, the transatlantic slave trade. So we had um, half a million enslaved Africans transported using uh, ships from Bristol and Bristolian merchants actually making a lot of money um, from uh, the trading of enslaved people to go on and build, um, you know, beautiful architecture that we see um, in Bristol today, you know, such as monuments and cathedrals and museums, like really imposing buildings. Um, and as you mentioned, um, around the protest recently, uh, Edward Coulston, um, his statue was, was famously pulled down um, in 2020. Uh, I believe it's now in a museum. Um, and I think it's it's a shame because if I'm honest, I didn't know who Edward Coulston was until that incident took mm-hmm. place which is quite, again, you know, we had the argument around, oh, but, you know, the statue will educate and, and say what, what but, but the statue wasn't... No one's stopping educa- by. <laughs> 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 the, the statue did not educate. It didn't educate anyone. Um, so, you know, he, I think that legacy kind of has has lingered because without the transatlantic slave trade, there's no way that Bristol would be the city that it is today so it was processing tobacco and, and sugar the raw materials um you know that, that, that were picked um within plantations and then that's what generated um the money for the city and i think the whole like edward colson's piece really highlights a key element when it comes to british history in terms of romanticizing the past because mm. i think there is definitely a balance but sometimes we kind of it tends to lean very much into this sort of like saviorism and having an empire that was wonderful but actually that darker element creates a lot more fairness in terms of really identifying okay there were challenges and being much more open and honest about it um yeah one thing I would add is that I did go to Bristol last year and um during that visit to the museums it did have a lot of sort of statements talking about uh kind of the, the legacy of of empire and, and enslavement within the city so it did say you know is this museum funded by enslaved people? Mm. It did actually admit to that and said, yes, you know, it, it is. And it is, I think there is now a bit of progress being done with sort of sharing these uncomfortable truths. And I, th- I think that's that's definitely somewhere where, you know, as you've mentioned, that museum in Bristol started to work quite well, that Britain as a whole start needs to start catching up and acknowledge mm. its its past and the involvement in its past and its present. Uh, because you know if we don't acknowledge these things if we don't we don't come to face them uh, we won't educate our future generations now speaking about you know being funded we're moving on to the 1960s and politically and economically you know it was a it was a difficult period for some people but how were you know black people and other minority ethnic backgrounds being affected um, by political uh, and the economic situation at the time were they were they more harshly affected uh, than 
you know white people in Britain yeah definitely so um we had the uh, Windrush uh, generation um who came over um from the Caribbean Caribbean countries and actually a lot of the people on board that came over did actually fight alongside Britain um during the second world war um but there was already a little bit of hesitation at this point because we had people that were uh you know mass immigration <laughs> and I guess it's sort of the first time that this kind of entered political discourse so you have the prime minister at the time um Clement Attlee being quite surprised at the number of people arriving but actually uh Jamaicans for example had every right because of the British Nationality Act which meant that people could move across like proper freedom of movement across all of the the British Empire which was just huge um at the time um but the people that came over ended up living in like bomb damaged or, or poorer areas um so we know like uh Brixton in London or Notting Hill at the time it used to be quite a slum um area uh, but these is because these were kind of the only areas where uh black people could actually rent uh or even buy if, if they were really lucky uh, property at the time so we did have a lot of anti-immigration rhetoric kind of entering and um, the political discourse so um, we've got a quote from John Hind who actually described people coming in as pouring into the country so that's when we start to see that language kind of enter and then uh, you did also have a lot of discrimination um, as well um, and a colour bar which which we all know kind of uh, happened and restricted people of colour, including uh, people coming over from India or Pakistan or other sort of uh, countries, um, which prevented them from actually getting uh, jobs that they wanted or housing as well. It's really interesting that that whole like anti-immigration rhetoric was coming through, because especially at the time, Britain needed people to come through and support when it comes to the NHS and that sort of thing. So it's really interesting that they're like, obviously, you know, enabled it through policy that people had the freedom of movement but and they also required those people to come in and do the work and support the any um things like the nhs but at the same time we're really being negative about it also so it's like feel free to come in but you're also not very welcome here so it's just yeah the just the double standard of it is so it's so frustrating because like these people made such a massive contribution for alongside yeah. Brits as well but actually it was like mm, well actually this is the box that we place you in and we're mm. only happy for you guys to belong in this very specific area but yeah it's it's really difficult to swallow that it's just yeah I think so and because a lot of like this country's identity does ride on World War Two, if yeah. we're honest <laughs> um, yep. and to not even sort of acknowledge the people that did actually help that effort um, and say, oh, actually, no, these people, like, they were part of the empire. They helped us succeed in this in this conflict, um, you know, but they because of that sort of racism um, and, and the way that the, the British Empire was in that those the subjects were kind of lesser than. I think that's what's kind of fueled that attitude that we see. And it must have been very difficult for these people coming across. We're having the positive message of come to Britain, come and yes. come and experience Britain, then you get there and it's not it's not welcoming at all. It's not what those mess initial messages were, uh, which I can I can understand would be a very difficult thing to to face and confront. Yeah. It would be and especially considering that, you know, the Windrush scandal is only recently really come to light. And yeah. to have come to Britain in the 60s, having lived through like decades, and it's only until this point that we're now really recognizing the challenges that these communities face coming into Britain is 
is honestly heartbreaking and I do think just obviously it's the reason why we're having this conversation but just needs to be amplified because the representation isn't there and kind of the recognition of how difficult it must have been to have been like you know as we're saying one hand yes it's open you're free to come in but actually you're facing barrier upon barrier for you that you're not able to kind of live here freely yeah and you can't even like you know pubs actually did have some form of segregation at the time as well because I think it's easy to think around when we when we hear the word segregation that we think of apartheid or we might think of of the states but actually there were sort of informal it wasn't necessarily written in law but these attitudes persisted um within just society in general and and talking about these these color bars and this in this segregation you know what what events occurred then in the lead up to the boycott so there was a lot of racial discrimination that people were facing and i think the for me i sort of see the bristol boycott bus boycott as like a kind of melting pot in terms of all of that kind of amplifying because essentially what you had the Bristol Omnibus Company they were a bus operator at the time and essentially as you mentioned they had a color bar a color bar in place and so essentially it meant that if you were you know black or Asian you weren't allowed to work for the bus operator and so it kind of meant they weren't able to gain employment because of the color of their skin and also those who were in work um who are kind of white British also supported this sort of like discriminatory kind of practice. Mm. So yeah, it was very challenging to kind of a really challenging time to kind of even gain employment um, mm. for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And and the treatment that these men are experienced when with the the Brist- Bristol Omnibus Company then is that a typical experience that black men at the time were experiencing, or was it something that was just happened just happening within Bristol? So there was, um, I'd say, a bit, little bit more relaxed rules when it came to transport for London. Um, however, there was a colour bar in Euston Station, if I remember correctly. So it wasn't unusual to have these kind of practices in place. Um, so at the time, it seemed like the norm because prior, this was prior to the Race Relations Act. So actually, discrimination was not illegal. So an employer could just say, you know, actually, or, you know, someone could come for an interview, saw that they were black or Asian and said, actually, it's filled. Like, that was quite common. And, and the same goes for housing as well. And so we've so if we're looking, we've looked at the treatment of black men and we looked at the events occurring. What actually occurred with this? I know it's kind of in the title, bus boycott. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but what actually happened with this event then? So the local bus service essentially passed a motion um, to ban um, people of colour from working as bus conductors and drivers in uh, 1955. And as we said, because the sort of the unions had at the time supported this practice, they didn't really do anything about it. Um, and then the local newspaper then sort of revealed this racist policy in the early 60s. But the boss of the Bristol Omnibus uh, company defended this and said that you know his staff didn't actually want to work with people of colour because they made the excuse of oh actually you know the quality won't be good or it's unsuitable for um, white bus conductresses to work with black male drivers um, and the local council ended up backing this sort of racist policy. Um, 
we did have at the same time some people opposing this motion so we had um black men owen henry roy hackett who recently passed away uh audley evans and prince brown and these men were part of what was known as the west indian development council um and they were formed kind of out of that windrush uh, generation and they joined force with uh, a man called paul stevenson um who became a, a spokesperson for this group um so what happened was that Guy Bailey was a black man that was put forward for a position um, at the Bristol Omnibus Company, um, which who they accepted. But when they realised that he was a black <laughs> a black man, they kind of rescinded the offer basically. So he called on you know the the West uh, the the four men and Paul Stevenson to kind of call for a bus boycott in 1963. Um, and they did get a bit of support from students and tutors from the University of Bristol. So a demonstration was also staged at the same time. Um, but the bus workers who supported uh, the colour bar were, were heckled um, as well. So, yeah, there was a claim because I know I mentioned earlier that Transport for London was slightly more relaxed. Um, so the bus uh the, the company sort of head claimed that non-white people that worked for transport um, for London would kind of end up displacing white workers. So again, there's that fear of, you know, the whole migrants coming and taking our jobs trope. Again, we kind of see this surfacing um, as far back as, as the 60s. And to see those messages reoccurring, you know, decade after decade uh, mm. kind of shows that we haven't, we haven't confronted this um at all we never and learn our lessons no <laughs> never, never. <laughs> and honestly it is so kind of it's just sad to see because you mm. know a lot of the messaging and the words that were being used is stuff that we hear today and we see in you know certain political campaigns and kind of how it's reiterated and you know controlling our borders um mm. so it's it's really difficult to see because when you see just the contribution that these communities had made into Britain and the way they've been treated is yeah and it's also the fact that this is not mentioned that like we all know about um Rosa Parks but we don't really know much about this story um at all um which again is is a bit of a disservice because then we'd be able to learn and see okay this is why Britain's or how Britain's gotten to this current point well, now, now you've mentioned Rosa Parks uh, with her bus boycott as well. I wanted to ask, what's the significance of bus boycotts then? I guess in a sense, it's like a like collective action because for, you know, um, black people fighting the civil rights movements in America and also um, those in the UK trying to gain employment rights, um, they just had to sort of withhold something. And it was then by not getting it on the bus or like just or like, you know, by collective action, um, demonstrations. And it did actually change policy uh, towards the end. So it's something that I think when when there's not much power, then collective action is, is really important. And this this is a, an example of that um, happening and working. And and when we're talking, you've touched on policy there and, and changing to policy. And you've also mentioned that the university in Bristol were supportive of, of this movement. How did the national media uh, and national politicians, how did they react and view this, this boycott? Because obviously it's gone from a, a small Bristol problem to prominence 
or being a prominent event in the national consciousness you know what was those what were those reactions you also had from a parliament perspective mps supporting the boycott and I think that really helped to really amplify and highlight what was going on in the situation. It was also as a result of the boycott that Race Relations Act in 1965 and then in 1968 were introduced to really then say, okay, we really need to make sure that, you know, in terms of racial discrimination, this is something that we need to look into. And so the act itself that was introduced banned racial discrimination when it comes on the grounds of kind of colour, race or ethnic or national origin. So, yeah, I think it really helped to, the newspapers at the time helped to amplify it. And I think because it was resonating with people and then MPs also bringing it to light really helped to push to for change really. And was there, was there much of a, I know around this time we have Enoch Powell, um, not a very pleasant man if I'm, yeah. and that's a, that's a, that's probably a, a nice way of saying it. Um, not a very, very pleasant man in, in British history. Yeah. You know? he is very prominent at this time you know what what was what was his kind of reaction uh to these these kind of issues that were in britain at this point yeah whilst they were sort of rolling out the race relations act i think that's when he kind of then piped up um with his <laughs> with his rivers of blood speech um and that emboldened uh and allowed for groups like the national front to terrorise uh, people of colour within Britain, just, I would say, for maybe 10, 20 years at least, uh, even probably into the 90s. And the scary thing is that a lot of them are still around because it's all very recent. Um, a lot of people would have probably, you know, marched with National Front, done the demonstrations. We've seen sort of more modern interpretations of that with, you know, the EDL, um, unsavoury figures like Tommy Robinson, for example. And that's kind of the legacy of the National Front, Enoch Powell emboldening um, these people um, and sort of peddling these uh assumptions about people coming from other countries into Britain uh, despite the fact that they were invited and they were at the time um, you know citizens of the United Kingdom and its colonies that's what it was known as at the time um, so yeah it really kind of started this really nasty um, discourse around around immigration and and that 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 speech is a very very chilling speech it's not a mm not a nice speech to listen to in any way shape or form uh, and the fact that that has come as a negative reaction to a very very positive needed piece of legislation uh, can show it shows the far-reaching positive and negative outcomes from this situation now obviously this this event not only stirred the nation's consciousness it also had international kind of effects you know how what was the international reaction then to to the bu bristol bus boycott so the high commissioner for trinidad and tobago um and a famous cricketer uh at his t at, of the time um sir constantine did rights to the bristol omnibus company um and i think that kind of would have had um direct influence because at the time um during the 60s that sort of thing happening abroad and people talking about it from a global perspective it means that it was a big story uh, for that to happen um so his influence was also quite kind of instrumental in uh, applying pressure to the relevant uh, figures and allowing for um the race relations act to happen 
and that, that, that like you said it's a big thing for these especially in the 60s where information doesn't flow as easily as it does today for something like yeah. this to become a global event uh, and for international actors to get involved yeah. uh, it really does show the gravity of the situation yeah. um so we've looked at the race relation act how much change apart from this act does this boycott bring to to the uk and how does it affect the lives of black people living in the uk so the act itself was very much a starting point because britain started kind of seeing itself and saying we do have a racial discrimination problem so you had the first act and then after that it sort of grew into looking at discrimination from an employment perspective housing you know certain ads and so it was very much this i see it very much as the starting point really for Britain to look at itself and say we need to look at discrimination a lot more and make sure that we're also protecting all these other communities as well um and so yeah no it was yeah extremely critical um part of British story yeah and on the other hand unfortunately we've, we've we have mentioned Enoch Powell but these kind of the events did kind of lead to the opposite side being galvanized by some you know because then it's like the, the enemy um, and they're upset that this has happened. Um, and we also see within the sort of freedom of movement that sort of winding down. So by the time we reach the late 60s, um, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act comes in, which means that they say that only belonging people have the right to work in Britain. But according to their rules, uh, belonging meant that you had to prove a connection to Britain through either a parent or a grandparent, which would mean that if you'd come from an African country or a country in the Caribbean, then you may not have a way of doing that. So that was just kind of a coded form um, or you know, a euphemism for basically saying white and, you know, Australians or New Zealand or Canada, you, you might be able to prove that a bit more easily at the time. Um, and the 70s did end up being quite a dangerous time for black and Asian communities. So it wasn't unusual for people to be assaulted or, uh, you know, walking home or kind of getting racial abuse quite openly. Um, and then by the time we do get to the early 70s, we then have the Immigration Act, which then stops large scale immigration from Commonwealth countries. Um, and we do then again see that dis that you know the discourse around immigration entering like political discussions because margaret thatcher then starts using some of the language um used by far-right groups by describing britain as rather swamped by people with a different culture which is quite a popular clip that, that often goes around um and she did end up winning the general election uh, the following year so that kind of resonated with people it's a bit like the take back control kind of yeah. line um you know some things just never change um and then by the time Thatcher then comes into power in uh by the time we get to the early 80s there's now the British Nationality Act which means that a Commonwealth citizen who comes to Britain has to register to become a British citizen which means that that freedom of movement across empire then kind of stops and I think that also means that you you can't if you're born in the UK it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a British citizen either so that's where it starts to get a little bit um starts to get a little bit more not as accommodating towards those who were once invited or once subjects of the British Empire it's it's, it's interesting to see for one thing that led to positive uh mm. outcome for a, for a group of people uh and a change for their life how it's so negatively uh, went the following decade and, and Britain, mm. the changing political establishment from a 
quite a liberal uh, perspective at that point uh, to one that swung to the right um, yeah. is, well, whilst not directly stemming from this, it seems to be mm. quite a sad change mm. uh, from mm. so much growth uh, and liberalism. Yeah, it's like people are sometimes afraid of change. And I think that when we see change happening and we then start to see, you know, some people might have seen peers that they might have thought in their heads that they were superior to them or that they were once people that lived in in former colonies. And then when that person then becomes your peer, they may then, you know, that kind of, it doesn't sit well with them. So that could be um, not not advocated for no, new behavior. But it is, <laughs> but I'm just trying to understand. No, no, I think it's definitely because if you think around the 60s, a lot of African nations were also gaining their independence, right? And yeah. so there's this sense of like, well, how I've in, like interpreted it for me is like maybe for Britain, you know, allowing that sort of freedom of movement initially was for them to sort of still maintain a level of control and relationship, yeah. and then it kind of got with them that okay by doing so we are saying that they are equal you know mm. and then actually the reality of that maybe wasn't what you know they'd expected it to be and actually then it's like oh how do we then withdraw a little bit and then it was about creating these barriers but at the same time just think from a messaging perspective you know black and asian people who came through were made such a huge and positive contribution um to british history but it just gets completely decimated by yeah yeah Yeah, it's a it's a very difficult thing to have to look at and go look this is or not difficult but difficult part to look at and then encounter and say this is what happened Uh, we need to be aware of our own history we need to be aware of the negative connotations that were pushed out um and the negative treatment that people received on the hands of white governments uh across the world not just in britain as well uh because you know whilst this is about black british history the same treatment happened across the world really mm, mm, exactly okay. now talking about the rest of the world i do have a final fun question for you both um you two have recently written a book and if anyone's seen on the history jackson blog i've written a review for it's a continent uh, unraveling africa's history one country at a time now this is truly a fantastic book um what was your favorite part of writing this book i'd say just getting to learn like Mm. you know we started the podcast because we were just like there's a gap in our knowledge and understanding and we wanted to learn even more and then it kind of grew into this book and I think having the opportunity to just learn even more and being able to share that with people because you know if you're looking at you know understanding and learning more about African history there's a lot of (laughs) there's a lot of content so it was nice to kind of support people in having that starting point and something that we felt was lacking and so yeah for me it was that just having the opportunity to spend some time and learn even more. Yeah, I would agree. I think just when we when we do our podcast, we often sort of find out information on on the go. So then we're like, oh, and that's like the reaction. So it's almost the same with the book as we were writing it because we just find out things, for example, about Lucifer in Africa. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that black people living in Portuguese speaking African countries uh, had a curfew at nine pm. That's just you know, how did I not know? You know, you just think that yeah, it's yeah. just ridiculous. You know, like these kind of things that we've discovered. So yeah, and it's the excitement about wanting to share that knowledge with others um for sure 
and I, I definitely sense both your personalities coming through in the writing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I could I could hear you two from the podcast. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, I I found it I found it such a great book. I found it really funny. So I think <laughs> in parts, not in the serious yeah, parts. Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> we tow the light. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <No>, but <laughs> I think I think one of my favourite parts, and I think for any historian. It's it's really great to see a book where chapter by chapter, I mean, it's not like a university reading list, but it kind of is, where it's going, oh, have a look at these ones as well, uh, mm-hmm. which I thought was really helpful from a perspective of someone who might want to learn more about African history. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And for us, that was like deliberate because we wanted, we were like, well, if you wanted a starting point and didn't know where to even begin, you could pick this up select you know decide to do okay west africa learn and then go and dig deeper because i think for us we was we didn't want to be an encyclopedia or you know there's just no way of covering absolutely everything and there's definitely an element as we said earlier around you know the history that we've learned in school there is definitely a deficit when it comes to covering um african history africa's history and so for us it was you know you do have to do your homework which is what we we've got out there and done but it helps you with some of people yeah let's we'll we'll give a little bit of a starting point just just a little bit and then you can carry on and share that with people and i think we built a really nice if i say so like community through the podcast that people do share and you know if they find some more fat interesting facts share it with us and i think that's kind of how we've yeah we've seen it and set it up yeah yeah definitely and, and you guys have been on the go constantly since you published that. Uh, so <laughs> I am in awe of your energy since yeah. then. <laughs> now, if, if people want to go out and learn more about uh, the Bristol Boycott, where can they look? So there are quite a few. Um, the Brit- Bristol Museum has a really good website where it's quite interactive and you can find out more information around the events that took place as well as uh, the wider sort of legacy that Bristol uh, has and how it got to its current position. Um, and yeah, they don't they don't mince their words. So it's really, really, really insightful. And I think particularly in light of, um, you know, the events of summer 2020 and, you know, the, highlighting more of an awareness and wanting to bring uh, black history back to the sort of uh, well not back because it never was <laughs> but to bring black history to uh to people's attention um then yeah definitely highly recommend um just looking up the bristol museum's website i think to add to that um david olusoga's book uh, yes. black and british and yeah. um, he does a really nice coverage and he does cover uh the bristol boss boycott so yeah if you want to learn more about you know black black people in britain um yeah that's a good book recommendation and if you're in bristol try and go to m shed it's really really insightful um yeah fantastic and i will to asher and chinny's own horn as well i'm saying they've (laughs) written a a fantastic article uh in the upcoming edition of the historians magazine uh it's really easy to read it's accessible it's it's packed full of information as well so i will recommend you guys going ahead and reading that as well and if anyone would like a discount code use jackson 10 to get 10 percent off on that one but i thoroughly recommend reading astri and chinny's article i think it's absolutely fantastic and it was a base part of my my questioning uh for this episode with them so i thoroughly recommend that one now <laughs> everyone's going to want to find you two online where can they find you 
Yes, so they can find us on Instagram at It's a Continent Pod and on Twitter at It's a Continent. And we also have a website, um, It's a Continent.com. And fantastic. And if they want to go and find your book, where can they head? If you go on the website, it will direct you to your, you know, um, your retailer of choice. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you don't like certain ones, so yeah, <laughs> we don't like to say certain ones in case yeah. people get. So offended. just feel free yeah, on the website. Yeah, I'm not having direct. that struck off. Yeah. <laughs> well, but thank yeah, you major retailers. Well, thank you very much, you two. You've been absolutely fantastic. I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. So thank you. Thank, thank you, Jackson. Thanks for having us, having us on. You.